The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We'd like to continue our consideration of the kingdom of heaven this morning, zoning in today on the kingdom being within you, the kingdom in our heart. In Luke chapter 17, he is questioned, or as it says here, demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. We've read from uh, Daniel chapter 2 quite a few different times that in the days of these kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom. And then also, I believe it was last week we considered the promise of the seed of David that he would set up a kingdom, that he would build a house that would stand forever. So most good Jews, okay, most good Jews knew about the kingdom that was supposed to be coming. And they were looking for a kingdom, and they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for somebody to, to initiate and to run that kingdom. But their problem was that they were looking for a natural kingdom. And a verse you really need to keep in mind as we continue to go through this consideration of the kingdom of God is in John chapter 18 and in verse 36, Jesus before Pilate, <clears throat> as he keeps asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And you may remember last week, yes, he is the king of the Jews, the king primarily of the spiritual Jews, right? That have the circumcision of the heart. But he says here in John chapter 18 and verse 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. You see, uh, not just the Pharisees, but even the apostles. Even the apostles, their understanding of the kingdom was still viewed through a natural lens and not through a spiritual lens. I, he, he spent three and a half years teaching them with arguably the, the primary theme of his entire ministry was the kingdom of God because he told him to seek you first the kingdom of God and then after he was resurrected after he was resurrected we find in Acts chapter 1 that he spent 40 days ministering to them and what does it specifically highlight that Jesus spent the 40 days after his resurrection teaching the apostles of things concerning the kingdom of God you see the kingdom of God is arguably the central theme of the New Testament. It was the central theme of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? He said the very first message that he preached after his baptism was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's right now. And then he preached about it all throughout his ministry. And then what did he tell? I mean, he only has 40 days before he goes back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And what was his focus during those 40 days with the apostles? The kingdom of God. And bless their heart, they're just as, as uh, dull of understanding as we are. After those 40 days of perfect teaching from the Son of God, what did they say? Well, he said, wait. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 1. He said, wait. Uh, it's not for you to understand the times and the seasons. Wait on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then what did they say? Well, at that time, are you going to return and establish the kingdom of Israel? You see, they were still thinking. <laughs> Isn't that something? Uh, that even with the perfect teaching of Jesus, they were still thinking that his kingdom was of this world. <laughs> they were still thinking that he was going to establish a, a national resurrection of the physical nation of Israel. But his kingdom is not of this world, okay? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Now is my kingdom not from hence. So if, if his was a natural kingdom, which is what all of the Jews expected, that he is going to 
create a physical army and we are going to attack the Romans with swords and with spears and we're going to overthrow them and we are going to return to the glory days of Israel of the kingdom of David and Solomon. That's what every Jew wanted and that's what every Jew expected. But even after the perfect teaching of Jesus, the Jews still thought that there was going to be a natural revolution of the physical nation of Israel. Okay? If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. Now, we don't fight with a natural sword and fight natural armies. Instead, we fight a spiritual warfare because it's a spiritual kingdom, isn't it? Right? We, we fight a spiritual warfare with the armor of God, which is the shield of faith, right? With the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, all of those components of the armor of God there in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a spiritual kingdom, so we do fight. You understand that, right? We do fight in the kingdom, but it's a spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual warfare, not a natural warfare. So, back in Luke chapter 17, these... Jews, these Pharisees, and this is what a good Jew heard in the synagogue every Sabbath day, okay? They had been drilled in their head that there will be a natural, national revolution of the, uh, the nation of Israel led by the Messiah, and that's why they struggled so much with passages of the Messiah like Isaiah 53, who is the suffering servant, who would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, beaten. How does that square with our, with our great military leader, right? He, he's a triumphant, he's a triumphant Messiah, but at the same time, this speaks of him suffering. They couldn't reconcile that, right? Because they viewed him as a mighty military general. But instead, again, his kingdom is not of this world. So the Pharisees demanded of him, when the kingdom should come. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, these are the same Pharisees uh, that were there uh, when John the Baptist was baptizing, uh, and he said, you need to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, and he, he dressed them down, oh, generation of vipers. Well, guess what? If they were paying attention to what Jesus, they're asking Jesus' opinion on when the kingdom's gonna come, well, if they've been listening to the message of Jesus, what have they already heard? The kingdom of God is at hand, right? <laughs> if they were paying attention to what Jesus was saying, they already knew the answer. Instead, many times they were tempting Jesus. They weren't, they weren't sincerely asking when the kingdom's going to come. No, he's been telling them. I uh, don't know what benchmark this is at in his ministry, but for multiple years probably, he had been telling them the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's right now. But they asked him one more time when the kingdom should come. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, why is the kingdom of God within you? Well, one of the main reasons that we hope to build on is the fact that the king resides within you, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm so thankful <clears throat> for uh, now that we've turned the calendar to 2022 and COVID simmered down a little bit, that we have getting back into what we would maybe consider a normal church annual meeting season. Mm -hmm. And and I tell you, it's been such an interesting two-year period mm -hmm. that we've been in. And um, I'd just like to say for Macedonia, I'm thankful that, that we've been blessed so much more than uh, other churches have because we held our own during this two-year period. The people who didn't come before, they still don't come. The core that is always here, I hope, has been strengthened in the midst of that. But most churches have been severely damaged, maybe irreparably damaged, and during this last two-year period. And I'm very thankful <clears throat> that we have been hopefully sustained to not lose any ground. And if we didn't lose any ground, we really gained it. <laughs> it's just been such a difficult period for churches and for the kingdom. But I was thinking what a, what a blessing it is that now we're kind of getting back into that and the opportunity to, to visit and to fellowship. 
And, and I think the Lord is just blessing in a special way because of the, the cold, difficult season that we've been in the last two years. Uh, just because sometimes you go through winter seasons, right? And it's just been a difficult two years, hasn't it? And isn't it great to maybe see a little bit of spring blossoming in that and the special presence of the Spirit uh, in quite a few of these meetings, ours in particular, but our other sister churches we've had a chance to visit. But I had the thought yesterday as uh, I guess when we were driving back and very blessed, just spirited services at Sulphur Springs, and we thank the Lord for that. But I was thinking to myself that, you know, there could be someone sitting in that physical location, but if they're not born again, they don't understand and they can't feel. It says in uh, John chapter 3 that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God you can't experience the kingdom of God, even if you're in the right physical location. The only way you can experience that is in your heart and in your soul that has been quickened, that's been regenerated, and that the king resides in your soul. The only way you can feel that amazing presence of God in the kingdom of heaven in the worship service is if... God has already born you again. But if you're unregenerate, it doesn't mean anything to you. You can be in the right physical location is what I'm saying, okay? And there's a lot of uh, preachers' kids that have been called to the ministry that have a very similar story that my, my parents drug me to church and the, the preaching was just dry and it, and it, was, it didn't mean anything to me. But then there came a time when that changed, you know? And I maybe, I wasn't antagonistic toward the preaching by any means, but I mean, I wasn't really zoned in when I was seven, eight, ten years old. I don't know when I was born again. I tend to think maybe it was around age 12 to 13 where I had a real desire at that time to join the church and desire to read my Bible. And I had saw some fruits that maybe, maybe that's when I was born again, but I don't know the exact moment I was. But I, if that is the case, if that is the case, uh, there's a high probability that I wasn't born again as an eight-year-old, okay? Uh, now, there's a lot of eight-year-olds that get a lot out of the worship service. Praise God for that, right? To see those little kids just soaking that up. But there's a whole lot of other little kids that don't get that, right? <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying is they're in the right physical location. They're in the right physical location, but they can't experience the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the kingdom is within you. It's not low here and it's not low there. I like the uh, interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 where she viewed true worship based solely on physical location, right? He said that um, you say, actually she told him, you say, the Jews say that true worship is in Jerusalem, it's in Mount Zion. But we believe that we worship in this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim there with the Samaritans. And you say that the true worship is at this GPS location. We say true worship is at this GPS location. And what did, you, what did, God, uh, what did Jesus say? God seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? Okay, so what's the first requirement there? Worship in spirit. That's why you have to have the spirit within you to be able to worship in spirit and truth, right? That's the first requirement, isn't it? But it, I want you to understand that it's not based solely on physical location. And it cometh not with observation. We can't see everything with our natural eye, but yet there's an aspect of the natural environment that, that we can experience it too. I mean, this is the house of God, the assembly of the saints, and we know that there is a physical location that we can go and the church can assemble here. And because of past experiences, we have felt the presence of God and we have felt the kingdom of heaven in a physical location. So you can't just necessarily just close your eyes and you know meditate all the time and say, Lord, give me the presence of the kingdom of heaven. No, you go to certain locations where you know the Lord is going to manifest his presence. However, what I'm telling you is that is not solely determined by 
the four walls of Eleven Staten Road, right? There are many um, children of God in times past due to persecution that did not have a physical location where they worshiped, right? They worshiped in homes. They worshiped in caves. They worshiped in all these locations. But I guarantee you, they felt the kingdom of heaven. You see, they felt the kingdom of heaven. There's not necessarily anything more naturally, chemically different from the sheetrock here in this building than there is in, in anywhere else, right? There's not anything chemically different. What makes it special? <laughs> it's the assembly of the saints, you see? It's the assembly of the saints, but more than that, it's the manifestation of the king that we can experience the kingdom of heaven and, as it says in, in one of our psalms, uh, maybe the mercy seat, and heaven comes down our souls to greet and glory crowns the mercy seat. There's some special locations that we can go to have that kind of communion with Jesus Christ, you see? However, I want you to understand it is not limited. It is not limited to the church building. It's not limited to even the assembly of the saints because the, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is so much more dynamic than just the church assembly that we have in the New Testament. What's special that we want to see this morning is that there have been children of God that have been restricted from the assembly of the saints. We spent a lot of time talking about the church last year, didn't we? The assembly, the ecclesia, the called out assembly of the church. And we are thankful for all of the components of the body of Christ. And, and we can have all these different spiritual gifts that encourage one another and we fellowship one another and that a beautiful dynamic of the body. However, we can experience the kingdom of God with just us and the king, you see? But oh, isn't it joyfully magnified when you have so many people approaching the throne and pressing into the kingdom all with the same mindset and the special experiences that we have when the church does assemble. But sometimes we feel bad, um, and, and we should maybe to a degree. We feel bad for some of these Old Testament saints that they don't have what we have, and they didn't. They, they didn't have. I mean, think about John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. <laughs> he heard the, son, the, the God the Father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit lied on him like a dove. Like, he saw that. But yet, God still says that the least in the kingdom of heaven has got it better than John the Baptist, right? Boy, isn't that special? <laughs> and then you think about all these godly men in the Old Testament. I mean, is there anyone that, that endured affliction more, more godly than Job? But man, he did not have anywhere near the, the knowledge that we have, but he was a lone ranger most of that time. He didn't have the, the structure of the church to, to strengthen him. Instead, if he, the people that were supposed to be the structure of the church, the three friends, they came and said, you're a wretched sinner. You need to repent. God's dumping all this on you because you are you're got some private sin. You know, uh, There's a reason why they're, you're called miserable. <laughs> The church, which by the way, a little side note, we, shouldn't, we sure shouldn't make other members of the church feel miserable like that, right? Especially when they're going through something like, like Job is. No, he gave us the body of the church to strengthen and encourage one another in that moment. But what I'm saying is Job didn't have the structure of the ecclesia assembly of the church, but he could still feel the kingdom of heaven, Okay. He could still feel the kingdom of heaven. He could feel communion with God even when he was essentially by himself. His, his wife, you know, his kids died. His wife turned on him. His three best friends said, you're, you're just horrible and you need to repent. All he had was the Lord. <laughs> Eventually, there's a, a young man that shows up a little bit later that encourages him a little bit. But then the guy who was essentially rebuking the, the three miserable comforters, he gets around to rebuking Job at that point too. So Job's by himself. 
That's what I'm saying. But he had the communion and the presence of God within him that he could experience the kingdom of heaven. And, and again, we have it. It's just so humbling to think about the fact that God has graciously, not just given us here in the church, but also by his providence, given me and you here today the opportunity to experience what true worship in spirit and truth feels like. I mean, there's a lot of sincere children of God that are way better people than I am, that probably even love the Lord better than I do, but they don't understand the real experience of worshiping in spirit and in truth. They're living out a diluted experience of discipleship. Those are people today, but how humbling is it that literally we have it better than Abraham and David and Solomon and, and all of these godly men of the Old Testament? How could God be so gracious to us for us to have a, a more uh, close and sincere experience of heaven right here in our life today that he gave it to us when they are so much better than us and they deserve it way much better than we do, right? You see? But God has been so gracious to allow us to experience the kingdom of heaven in a special way. They, they, had, they had the kingdom of heaven with the knowledge and the setting and the understanding that they had in that day. But it's nothing compared to the New Testament kingdom where we have the knowledge. We have the knowledge. Let's go to uh, Colossians chapter 1. And again, we were saying that um, we have so much more knowledge that gives us a better understanding of this kingdom. In Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 26, it says there were some things that were hid from the view of people in the past. Verse 26, even the mystery, I mean, it didn't make, it, it, it was a mystery to many people in, in the Old Testament. They didn't understand it. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Going back to Job, he had the king residing in his heart. But you know, he said, I know my Redeemer lives. But he didn't know his Redeemer's name. You know that? Job didn't know the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, he knew the king, didn't he? <laughs> He knew the king, and he knew that I'm a wretched sinner, and somebody's got to redeem me. <laughs> so therefore, I have a redeemer. But he did not know the redeemer's name, you see? He, he could not say what we can say simply by reading Colossians 1.27. He could not say, Christ in me, the hope of God. He couldn't make that statement. But he knew he had a redeemer in his heart, <laughs> and he loved that redeemer, and he said, I'm going to see him with my own two eyes. <laughs> Isn't it good that God is so gracious to his children that live in gospel ignorance that they can have a vision of the king, right? They can have a vision of their redeemer and a hope of the resurrection. But, boy, isn't it, isn't it so much better when that hope is informed hope, <laughs> right? When the gospel gives you knowledge to know not just that I have a redeemer and I have a hope, that I'm going to see him. But then to say that Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ and he lives in your heart and then to know a little bit about the resurrection of the dead, right? That's what the new... He had a hope that I'm going to see him, but I don't really know how. I don't know how I'm going to be just. I'm so, so of a truth. But how can a man be just with God? How's it possible? Well, the New Testament and the Bible tells us how it's possible. We have that knowledge that Job didn't have. So that is, a, that is a, a realization that has been hid from God's people for a period of time, but it was revealed when Jesus came, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I'll tell you, that's just really something to meditate on. I'd encourage you to do that this week. And, and just like the Trinity and just like a lot of other things, I sure can't understand that. You know, Jesus said many times in his ministry that, I'm going to the right hand of God the Father. I'm going to heaven. But then he also said, where I am. 
Okay, God's everywhere present. He's nowhere absent, right? Jesus was God manifest in the flesh in a physical body of a man for 33 and a half years. But at the same time, he was still in heaven. And at the same time, he was residing in the heart and the soul of every single child of God in this world. <laughs> Boy, that is a dynamic God, isn't it? <laughs> that, that resides inside the heart of every single child of God at one time. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans chapter 14. And this is in the middle of a context of uh, Christian liberty and people putting too much emphasis on physical things, just like how the Pharisees put too much emphasis on a physical location. They were putting too much emphasis on the, the physical meat and drink. Some of it was... Uh, meat sacrificed to idols and some people had knowledge and some people didn't and some people uh, had enough uh, Christian liberty and understanding to say I can partake of this and thank the Lord for it and it's not sinful but other people said oh no 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 that's horrible it's horrible and and that's that's sinful to do that okay well you need to be as he says later on in this chapter you need to just be fully convicted and convinced in your own mind okay wherever your conscience burdens you you follow the convictions of that conscience. But what you don't become is a legalist to say that it's all about meat and drink. This is what he goes on to say here in Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, okay? He's saying, look, this is Christian liberty, and you have to determine the convictions of your conscience and follow the convictions of your conscience, but you also don't judge or think, down or get a haughty attitude towards someone else who says, I can exercise this Christian liberty. Okay? So the kingdom of God and real authentic discipleship is not determined by whether you eat or don't eat food. <laughs> okay? The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What is the kingdom of God primarily experienced? But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, where does the Holy Ghost reside? within you, right? The kingdom of God is within you. Jesus Christ is perfectly one with the Holy Ghost. And righteousness, peace, and joy in your heart. That is the expression, the experience of the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, we can go to a physical location. Like I said, worship service, fellowship with the saints. We can go to a physical location to experience that. But you feel that presence of heaven. You feel that presence of the king in your heart. I mean, can you can you relate to this? Can you can you have you experienced when you've communed with God privately, certainly, but when you've communed with God in a special way in a Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit anointed worship service, and the only thing you can really say is, "My heart is full." My heart is full. I appreciate Brother Joel's prayer in the afternoon service yesterday. That only thing we can say is, "My cup overflows." That, that's how your that's how your soul feels, right? And what's it overflowing with? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And I'll tell you, that's what the kingdom is. <laughs> Kingdom is joy in your heart, overflowing joy in the heart. And you know what? That is a taste. That is the earnest of our inheritance that we're going to have in heaven. And boy, if that joy of the Holy Ghost just bubbles and overflows out of our heart right here, right now, man, I can't imagine what the joy that's going to flow out of our heart in heaven, the fullness of heaven is going to be like when you multiply that little bit of joy we have right now times infinity, times a billion. <laughs> man, that little bit of joy, and it's so satisfying to your soul right now. Oh, man, how amazing, how beautiful heaven must be, right? But I feel that joy in my soul right now and say, man, that's the kind of joy that I'm going to feel when I see my Savior face to face, right? But you experience that within you, okay? 
you experience that in your soul. You experience that joy in your heart and in your soul, okay? Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 8. And we said before, uh, first of all, we should be very, very humbled and gracious and thank the Lord that he's been so kind and, and loving and gracious to us that we can experience the kingdom of heaven and, and have more of an understanding of what eternity will be like than so many of his children did not have to the degree that we have it here today. But I want to highlight a couple instances where people were by themselves, but they experienced the special presence of the king in the kingdom of heaven. And that's great, but we've got it even better than that. <laughs> when it's magnified by so many uh, children of God assembling together in the context of the church. And the, the Spirit of God and the joys of heaven is poured out in an even more, even more manifest way here today. In Matthew chapter 8, he has just um, healed the centurion's uh, child here. And uh, the centurion was a Gentile, okay? And he says in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. Okay, so he's a Gentile. He's committing the great faith of this centurion, requesting Jesus to heal his son, and he was healed. But then he says in verse 11, <clears throat> And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, many Jews, their idea of not just the kingdom of heaven, but even God's love was solely restricted to the circumcision of the flesh, the physical lineage of the Jews, okay? So then, therefore, Jesus says, I have found faith is an evidence, okay? Uh, you think, Jews, that God only loves the Jews? Well, I found great faith in a Gentile, Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. That means God has a people outside of the Jews, right? Okay? But not only that, not only does the centurion exhibit that God has a people outside of the Jews, but many shall come from the east and the west. There's going to be a whole bunch of Gentiles coming into the kingdom. And they can... This is a very interesting spiritual, figurative uh, mindset for us to have in the kingdom of heaven that we can sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and what's the common denominator that we can sit down and fellowship with them? In the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to see Abraham till heaven. I'm not, I'm not going to see uh, physically um, Abraham until we are uh, in heaven together. But we can have a fellowship in the, with the king and with Jesus in the same way that he had a fellowship with the king. And we can fellowship with them in a figurative sense as, as we fellowship with Jesus the same way that they did, okay? Uh, if we go back to Genesis and see, you know, think about Genesis chapter 18 where uh, three people came uh, to the plains of Mamre. And, and they go and they prepare them a meal. And then we find out the two of them, which are angels, they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to destroy the Sodom and Gomorrah. But then there's another one that stays who is addressed with the capital L-O-R-D, the Jehovah God. So God came and fellowshiped in the home of Abraham, in the home there being his tent, Right? He came and he fellowshiped with Abraham in his home when Abraham just, you know, it says in, uh, what's that, Hebrews 13, to be not uh, forgetful to entertain uh, strangers because you can entertain angels unawares. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to that, but particularly Abraham. I don't think that uh, he knew that that was 
God showing, taking physical form for a moment and coming there into his tent. I think that was just how he treated all three. Three random people show up at uh, outside my house. What am I going to do? I'm going to bring them into my house. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to show love to them. I'm going to wash their feet. I'm going to to show love and kindness to them. And oh, by the way, when he did that, oh, two of them were angels and one of them happened to be God. <laughs> How about that, right? But isn't that kind of the same kind of language that we see, um, such as Revelation chapter three of the church at Laodicea. If any of you, I'm knocking at the door of the church, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open the door unto me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. That's what Abraham did with God in his tent. You see, he experienced a special fellowship and communion with the king when he did what he was supposed to do, which was to entertain strangers, right? To be hospitable and show love to those that came, that came his way. Then we fast forward over to uh, Genesis 22 and Mount Moriah, right? where he sees, um, figuratively, Jesus Christ as he's told to sacrifice, um, sacrifice Isaac. And then Isaac says, uh, where's the sacrifice? And then the great language that, that Abraham uses there, that God shall provide himself a sacrifice. And then he's just about to take the life of Isaac, and then an angel stops him, and then he sees a ram caught in the thicket, and then he takes the ram. The ram takes the place of the son. The ram takes the substitution, takes the place of Isaac, and then, and then he kills the lamb. Now, by faith, by faith, Abraham was able to see something different than just the natural events that were occurring right there. Okay, John chapter 8 and in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. You know, by faith, Abraham there on Mount Moriah, which by the way, that's the exact same mountain range that Calvary was on. So in the exact location that the Lamb of God thousands of years later would be slain as a substitutionary sacrifice for all the children of God, Abraham saw by faith the Lamb of God that was going to take away the sin of the world by him sacrificing that ram, okay? And that was no doubt a very special experience of the kingdom of heaven, but more than anything, a special vision of the king, you see? He had this special communion with the king in his experience of the kingdom of heaven on Mount Moriah. But isn't it great how Abraham, he didn't have the full knowledge probably, just like, just like Job. He had, a, he had a hope of a redeemer, but he did not know that that redeemer was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, did Abraham know that that lamb was going to be Jesus Christ of Nazareth? He may not have, but he knew that there was going to be a lamb that was sacrificed to take away sin, you see? But he saw Jesus' day. You see that? He saw Jesus' day, the special experience of the kingdom of heaven. Now let's go to Genesis 28. Um, I'm sure Isaac has some good, it says Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm sure Isaac has some good experiences, but I didn't think of a good one to highlight, and we don't have time to really consider it anyway. But look at the special experience of Jacob of the kingdom of heaven in Genesis 28. Go ahead and turn there, Genesis 28. But while you're doing that, uh, I want to read to you a corresponding verse in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, as uh, God, as Jesus Christ has called Nathanael, uh, when I saw you under the fig tree, I called you. And he said, based on him knowing him under the fig tree, he acknowledges that he's the son of God. And he says in verse 50, because I say unto thee, uh, I saw you under the fig tree, believest thou this, thou shalt see greater things than these. Now he followed him in the kingdom of heaven, right? Nathaniel followed him as a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And he said, if you were impressed by me just simply exhibiting my omniscience, you're going to see much greater things than just my omniscience manifested. 
But then he says in verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, now notice, you're going to see heaven opened. Now, Nathaniel was not one of those three people that saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? So Nathaniel didn't see the Mount of Transfiguration. And I don't believe that this is referring to uh, any other specific event that we have uh, highlighted in Scripture. What's he talking about here? He's like, look, when you're fellowshipping with me in discipleship and following me in the kingdom of heaven, you are going to see heaven open. And, and what's so special about that is that occurred within the natural day-to-day -day activities of him following Jesus and in Jesus's daily ministry. You see, he saw heaven opened and the special experience of the intercessor, the connecting link. You know, you have the son of God and he connects heaven and he connects earth and he's the connecting link that the angels are, are ascending and descending upon. He is the connection between heaven and earth. Which that makes sense, isn't it? Right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're experiencing the kingdom of heaven. How does heaven come down to us? Because there's a connecting link. You see that? There's a connecting link. Jesus is in heaven. He's in our heart. How do we experience and see heaven opened? By the connecting link of heaven come down through the ladder of the Son of God, if you'll let me use that language, okay? So Nathaniel, in his discipleship, in experiencing the kingdom of heaven, he saw what Jacob saw figuratively looking forward, okay? And what I mean by that is Nathan experienced, Nathaniel experienced that in his physical life. Jacob saw the exact same thing by faith, okay? You see that? That there's a sense in which Nathaniel and Jacob experienced the same thing in the kingdom of heaven because they saw the same thing. They saw Jesus connecting heaven and earth. Genesis 28, and this is where he uh, is, uh, and <laughs> as a side note, um, it's very possible um, that Jacob essentially bears no good fruit prior to this moment right here, okay? Now, there's very few people in Scripture that it gives us outside of maybe the thief on the cross and, and uh, John the Baptist and Saul of Tarsus. He doesn't give us the exact moment that people are born again, okay? But I believe it's very likely that Jacob was born again in this moment because all you see is bad fruit before and afterward you see the fruit of the Spirit, okay? So the whole reason that he's even in this scenario is because he's tricked his brother multiple times, he stole his blessing, and now Esau said, I'm going to kill you. And Mama said, why don't you go stay with the relatives? <laughs> Mama said, why don't you get out of town? Okay, He's fleeing for his life because he's a dishonest supplanter. <laughs> now, I think that's a good thing to be reminded of too because it's not about how good we are. <laughs> We're going to see the thief on the cross in just a minute. He's in a, in a really bad spot right now. And it's solely because of his own sin. But that is where God sees fit to manifest himself in the special way to Jacob, maybe even warning him again. So he is on the run from Esau, so he's not killed. And then he's sleeping on a, uh, on a pillow of just a rock. Verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now, who was that ladder? It was Jesus. You see, it was the king. And, and then he says in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, God of Isaac, and the land whereon thou liest, I will give it to thy seed. Thy seed, which is speaking of the elect family of God here, not the natural Jews. Thy seed shall be of the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in thee and thy seed shall all the families 
of the earth be blessed. Verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven. And what does he describe this? He names this place Bethel. Bethel, which literally means the house of God. The house of God. Now that underscores how important it is for us to assemble for public worship because the house of God is the gate of heaven. This is the gate. <laughs> this is the entrance way. It talks about us pressing into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's the gate? What's the entrance way to the gate of heaven that you're going to experience the, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven? What's the gate? Baptism, right? That's how you go into the Lord's church. So we have this beautiful expression here of of Jacob experienced the kingdom of heaven while he's by himself sleeping on a rock running from his brother so he doesn't kill him. Okay, now let's go really quickly to uh, Luke 23 and look at the thief on the cross. And we know that there was a time where both thieves were casting the same in their teeth. They were blaspheming him. And then there was no change of the malefactor that was... Uh, if you'll just let me to assume some things for a minute, most likely on the left side, it just makes sense that the born-again thief would be on the right side of Jesus, wouldn't it? It would make sense he'd be on his right hand. So the thief on the left hand is saying, uh, if thou be the Christ, save thyself. But then the thief on the right hand has a change from what we saw in Matthew 27 and verse 44, that they cast the same in their teeth. And so... He says, dost thou not fear God, seeing that we are in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, now we know that there sure enough wasn't a preacher here, right? We know that this is a great example of the sovereignty of God and the immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. And we know that. And that he was born again. But this gives you a little bit of, of knowledge about the kind of knowledge that God implants in his children at the new birth. Because there wasn't anything kingly about Jesus of Nazareth being crucified on that cross a couple feet from him, was it? There wasn't anything that would end other than the, the mocking um, accusation above him that said the king of the Jews. That was the only designation that would even indicate he was a king, is this, this blasphemous, mocking title that was above him. How did he know that this man was a king and he was going to his kingdom? The Holy Spirit taught him that in his heart. And he had a hope. He had a hope that you are going somewhere that I want to be at. <laughs> Jesus, you're going into your kingdom, and Lord, please remember me. Lord, please remember me when you're coming. And you know, that tells me that he believed he was a king. <laughs> he had a knowledge of the king. And just like how Stephen you know, has this, this picture of Stephen when he's being stoned and he's about to die, and he sees this beautiful vision of the king. I mean, what an amazing experience that he had of the kingdom of heaven right there, right before he died. But I just tend to think, you know, how, you know how he was almost so filled up with the Holy Spirit that he couldn't even really feel the stones that were, that were killing him. We don't really know what happened uh, with this thief. We do know that he didn't, didn't give up the ghost like, like Jesus did. So that means that they would have broke his legs and he would have suffocated to death. Okay? But you know what? I just tend to think that he was probably like Stephen and he didn't hardly feel any of that. He didn't feel any of that physical pain. He didn't feel any of the, the physical affliction of him losing his life. Why? Because I, I just, and I'm, I'm making liberties here, and you take it for just that, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if the Lord opened heaven a little bit for that thief to see that kingdom, to see the joys of heaven. He, he opened a glimpse for Stephen for a minute, and I just tend to think he may have done that for the thief too. Because he had a clear vision that, Jesus, you're going to a kingdom. You're a king and you're going to the kingdom. And, Lord, please remember me. Now, this is the final destination of the kingdom of heaven, isn't it, right? We, have, we get a little bit of it right now, but that's the final destination 
of the kingdom of heaven is to be with Jesus um, at the right hand of God in the presence of the king. So uh, one more to highlight very quickly. Revelation chapter 1, as John is by himself on the island of Patmos. He's physically alone. He is isolated. We talked about the church not having the assembly of the church. Isn't it great to have 20, 30, 50 people to be able to fellowship with and encourage one another and the blessing that we have in the church? But that thief, he didn't have the church, did he? The church, he didn't have the church. What did he have? Well, he had the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> For a couple hours. For a couple hours, he had the kingdom of heaven. And John had been removed from the blessings of the church body. He had been removed from the blessings of the ecclesia. But then, it was in Revelation chapter 1, and in verse 10, that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice and of a trumpet. And who does he see right here? This beautiful depiction of Jesus Christ. So he's by himself. He's by himself on the island of Patmos. But all it takes, <laughs> all it takes to have fellowship and communion with Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit residing within you and to be living in the Spirit and be walking in the Spirit. John was physically by himself. You see? Similar to Abraham and Jacob and the thief on the cross. He was physically by himself. He was removed from the assembly of the church. But I don't know if anyone has experienced more blessed visions of joy in the kingdom of heaven than John while he was by himself. Boy, I can only imagine, you know, the kingdom is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. I can only imagine the joy he had in the Holy Ghost as he's seeing these amazing visions of not just Jesus Christ, uh, of him and his glorified state, but seeing him as the lamb slain from the foundation, all these beautiful images that we have, boy, that is a special experience of the kingdom of heaven, right? But don't miss, he was totally by himself when he experienced that special fellowship with the king, okay? The kingdom of God is within you. It is special communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Spirit in our heart and in our soul, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.